The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investmart.com.au. Welcome to the final edition for 2018 of Skin in the Game. I'm your host, Nathan Bell, Portfolio Manager for the InvestSmart and Intelligent Investor Growth and Income Funds. I'm joined today by Alex Hughes, who looks after our Small Caps Fund. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Nath. We've got a lot of questions in from listeners, uh, which is great. So thank you very much. Uh, a lot of questions about smaller cap stocks today. So we're going to answer basically all of them if we can. Uh, but first, I just want to look at a report that was recently published by Intelligent Investor where we picked our top three for three stocks. It's a competition that's been going for a year already, but as I'm only new uh, into the business, uh, I put my three stocks in, so effectively I'm joining with only two years to go. And I just loved one of the comments uh, at the end of the article from a subscriber who said, I'm glad the rational brains are uh, outside of this um, contest are picking the stocks because you can tell that everybody's swinging for the fences and wants <laughs> to win and so uh, risk has gone out the window and everyone's just picked out what they think is going to be the highest returners. So just quickly, Alex, you picked Academies Australasia, Thorn Group, Trade Me. Uh, now great news given this was our biggest holding in your portfolio and the couple of portfolios I look after, Trade Me's got a takeover offer. Do you want to just quickly say what's happening and, and what you're doing with the portfolio? In terms of trade me, you meant? Yes. Um, yep, so currently we've reduced the, the position size to 7% or so. And um, we did that on the basis that the position size got very large as a result of the, of the takeover premium. So we wanted to take some risk off the table in case the, the bidders walked away. But what's actually happened this week is that they've locked in a scheme of arrangement with Apex Partners at a price in New Zealand dollar terms of 6.45. So we now have a lot more certainty over this bid um, so it's looking likely that the business will be sold to Apex at this stage. However, there is room for a competing bid at a higher price. So we've got our fingers crossed that that happens, but it's looking likely we'll, we'll be selling at $6.45 New Zealand dollars. Okay, so in terms of the top three for three contest, now you're looking very good because you've got a nice winner there. Yep, got one locked in, but yeah, I mean, if, if there's other competing stocks out there that compound for a few years, we'll miss out on that, so it'll be interesting. So we won't talk about Thorn Group in detail because now you can go back to our first podcast where you talked about that in detail. Uh, the other stock you've got in there, Academies Australasia, what's the investment case for that one? And I assume you own this in the portfolio as well. We do, yes. Um, so Academies Australasia is a, a small vocational education business and it specialises in international students. It's actually, it's, it's been around for 100 years in, in numerous forms and it's been listed for about 50 and it was actually the first educational company on the, on the ASX, even before Navitas. Um, the thing that brought me to the stock though was insider buying. So when the sector was experiencing a rout as a result of a number of players taking advantage of the government funding on offer um, and, and, and sort of providing really poor outcomes for students, Academy's Australasian um, directors were heavily buying shares and they already owned about 60% of the company. So at a time when prices were low and there was lots of uncertainty, they were really um, voicing a strong um, show of support for the company. Um, they, they had a few issues at the time, um, which they've since wor worked through, but what's emerged is that they've got a, a strong cash generative business that's growing nicely. So able to pick it up at a cheap price and um, yeah, and it's been doing well. There's been some special dividends, a few buybacks, and they released an update recently with, with the first quarter of FY19 growth and it's, 
it's performing very strongly. You've got some operational leverage coming through. Obviously, there's a, a predominantly fixed cost base, you know, based on the, the premises of the schools and the, and the teachers required to educate the students. So if you get enrolments up, um, you know, you get some strong, strong earnings growth there. So with lots of the competition out of the market now that the regulator has um, clamped down on um, a bunch of the dodgy operators in the space, the surviving operators are, are having a good go of it. So yeah, and it's still reasonably priced at this stage. It's amazing how when you've got big insider ownership, all of a sudden you start to see things like cash on the balance sheet, special dividends, which you don't generally see from any other company. Uh, just, just coming from that, the capital allocation is good. They're actually thinking about you know, owners, uh, or sh small shareholders as being owners of the business. Uh, so that sounds interesting. If I could only hang my hat on one thing, I reckon, although it's not perfect, big insider buying is it. The stocks I picked uh, were Frontier Digital Ventures, which uh, we both have in our portfolios, uh, and 360 Capital Group. Now, they were written up uh, in a report that came out with a special Christmas offer with the uh, intelligent investor, so I'm not going to go into detail them, uh, about them today. Uh, but the other comp company I picked was Class uh, which has the ticker CL1, and Christian sent in a question about class as well, so it's a nice segue. He says, thoughts on class, I own it myself, but wondering whether the business might suffer as self-managed super funds may become less attractive in future. I have an SMSF. Also, you mentioned their portfolio product. I assume it's similar to ShareSite. Alex, you got any comments you want to make on this stock? Uh, I'll leave it to you, Nath. Leave this it to is, me. This is your stock. <laughs> so... So the thing I really like about Class, and for people who aren't familiar with the stock, in the past it's traditionally provided a very cheap uh, software for individuals or for planners with a whole bunch of clients uh, to issue them with software to manage their self-managed super funds. They've been very successful, uh, but they've had another company, which is a privately listed company, that's been snapping at their heels and they've been investing as well. So there's been a bit of price pressure in the industry and that's why I think the share price has come off a little bit recently. But that's not the big opportunity for the company. The company uh, has been taking customers for the SMSF software and I think it can still continue to, that, to do that for a while yet. Uh, there's still a lot of people who run SMSFs uh, that don't use good software and the software is very cheap. Uh, from class, it's in. It can, sometimes can be less than a hundred dollars, so that the, the cost is not a reason not to use it. And and by all um, everything I've heard, it's an excellent product. So it's, the complexity isn't a reason not to use it either. And it's far better than using a spreadsheet, which is what most people, including myself, typically use. But the big opportunity is actually in its. Uh, it's got a portfolio product which is uh, essentially the same as, or at least a version that's coming like Hub Twenty Four the big platform companies that are offering a whole bunch of investments on the software platform. Now, it's only in its infancy, but it's a very cheap way, or going to be a very cheap way in the future for people to not only have that SMSF software to manage or to do the administration, but also for a way to access investments uh, at a really good price as well, uh, and to avoid some of the higher fees on some of the other platforms. Now, they're offering fixed fees on this uh, for some clients, particularly bigger clients. Uh, that's very rare in the industry. And in fact, Investmart has fixed fees on its ETFs and other products here. I believe we were the first in the industry to do it. So it shows you, one, the pressure on fees across the industry. So you need to be really careful when you look at any of these financial businesses that earn their keep simply by charging a fee because they're coming down. But I think there is going to be good markets for those companies that can offer a good service at those low prices uh, and still have very high margins and produce lots of cash flow. Now, this business isn't going to be huge in the next year or two. 
I've bought this company in the portfolio for the next three or four or five years, so it may not may not help me win the top three for three competition, uh, but it has all the sorts of attributes that we're looking for. It has high insider ownership, a company that's prepared to invest a lot of money now to build a bigger uh, business in the future and compromise short-term profits, uh, and obviously being a software company, it has high profit margins, lots of free cash flow and a good balance sheet. So that's the, that's the case for class. Uh, nothing's guaranteed. It's still got a price-to-earnings ratio of over 20, um, so it's not statistically cheap, but I, I think over the years it's going to be a very good business. The next one is a company, Alex, that you visited recently that you're interested in. It's called RPM Global. It's a software business that operates in the mining industry, which I saw a presentation for many years ago. Uh, tell us what you learned and whether this is a stock that's going to go in the portfolio. Okay, I'll start with some context. So RPM Global as a business has been around for 30 or 40 years and for most of that time it was an advisory business to the mining sector. So it would help mining companies with capital raisings or geological studies and things like that. Um, but they also have had a, a smaller software business for much of that time and um, during the, the, the boom years of the mining industry the advisory business was making so much money that the software business got sort of neglected and it wasn't a focus for investors. But when the mining bus started, that started to change as well. And an experienced mining executive by the name of Richard Matthews joined the company. He bought a substantial stake in the business with his own money and he shifted the priority of the company towards the software business. And they, they started heavily in investing in, in the products there. And I think since then they've spent about $70 million in that business. And it's been growing nicely organically and they've also made a number of quite strategic acquisitions as well to really strengthen that position and, and grow the, the footprint there. So um, earlier this week I went up to Brisbane to see what they've been working on and um, saw three of their new products and I actually came away quite impressed with what I saw. So the first one was Minview which is a business they bought last year and Minview um, provides connectors and sort of data cleansing for, for mining companies which sounds really boring but when you appreciate what it does for the RPM global business it, it becomes quite exciting. So if you think of a, a normal Caterpillar truck or a, just a regular piece of mining equipment on a site there'll be hundreds of sensors on that equipment which take data that is then used um, later on. So what Minview does is it actually takes that data and then cleanses it and delivers it in usable form. And there's, there's actually a, a lot of smarts to that and it's actually quite difficult. And they've got a number of agreements with OEMs and so they get lots of data from lots of, lots of equipment across lots of mine sites. So RPM Global, which has an existing software business, has, has taken that and integrated that into their existing products. And it means that they get real-time, highly valuable data, which they're able to enrich their own products with. And, so, so we saw that and I saw some of the integration there which looked, looked quite positive. Um, the next product I saw was Execute which is a, an ultra short term planning product and this product is used because um, with, a, with an ore body when miners you know, identify the value of that ore body and then figure out how they're going to extract that and develop sort of a long term plan for the mine they need to figure out whether they're on track for that plan because a number of things can pop up in the short term. You can have adverse, um, adverse weather events. You can have you know, changes in, in the mining methods that's imposed by you know, changes in the commodity price. And you know, there's, there's hundreds of variables. So the, the guys on the ground need to see whether they're working towards that long-term plan and this product helps them do that. And what the product actually shows the operators is a simulated version of the mine 
and it highlights the, the areas that they should be focusing on. And, and using some of the data from MinView, they can actually see where their, say for a digger, where the, the digger's tray and bucket is, is scooping up that ore. And they can see that sort of with like a 3D visual representation of that. So really rich data, really great user interface and um, it's really adding a lot of value for miners. And, and the last product was Simulate, which is again another simulated product. You know, it shows a, a sort of a simulated map of the mine, shows all of the, you know, the deposits and all the roads and then all the equipment that operates on the mine. And it, it allows a miner to actually simulate and extrapolate their operations and that tells them whether they're doing things in the most efficient way. So you might have a road which goes a particular way and trucks might drive up that road taking the, the ore to the crusher, for example, and there might be a bottleneck and all the, the trucks have to slow down at, at a particular point. And with the software, you can extrapolate that over a whole year and you can see the implications for the amount of diesel the, the, the miner will have to pay for and you know the lost productivity of this little bottleneck. And so it helps the miner sort of tweak their operations to end up with the most efficient outcome. So yeah, really, really impressive software. Um, a lot of these products are really new and they're sort of yet to really be rolled out across the industry, but I think given the momentum behind the company and some of the really interesting things they're doing, it's going to be quite an exciting few years. So is this one for the watch list or you've got more work to do? No, this is a current holding. Um, this, is, this is a stock that I previously covered at Intelligent Investor. I've, I've held it personally for a few years now and it's a company that I'm quite convicted about, I think. Um, the CEO is very impressive. He's had a really strong background in enterprise software, worked at some of the some of the big companies out there and created a lot of value in those roles. And he's rolling out the same strategy here. And I think um, I think the, the proof is in the pudding. So you're starting to see some results. Um, they've moved to this new subscription model um, that's starting to gain momentum. Um, and I think the business is really, really quite cheap. And I've been trying to encourage them to do an um, investor day, you know, like a zero con to actually show their software to the investor community. And I think if people um, could see what they're actually doing, I think it would um, start to get a bit more interest. When I rejoined uh, three or four months ago, uh, I said in, a, in an article in response to a few questions uh, from investors and subscribers that I was looking, really looking forward to learning more about some of the software companies in Australia because uh, a, a famous guy in the technology world called Mark Andreessen uh, has a theme that software is eating the world. And if you think about it, Software is just the way we do things better with less human interaction. And it doesn't matter whether it's things going to be linking up to your toaster in future or mm -hmm. whether it's in mining, software really is eating the world. And in the old days, software businesses didn't used to be that great of businesses, but uh, sometimes you can have the greatest product, but without the distribution, you're not actually going to be able to get those sales. So you really need to have that distribution is the real key to getting your software out there. So you're not necessarily going to have millions and millions of these software companies, you're going to have niche software operators that have the distribution and really dominate their industry. So that sounds like an, a stock was certainly worthy of people's time. That's a great point about distribution and RPM Global has a, a really strong opportunity there because it's, it's one of the biggest listed players in the software, mining software space. And it's already bought a few smaller mining software companies which have a sort of regional focus and it takes that and then expands it through its international distribution base and international customer set. And so it did that with a business called iSolutions and that business has grown significantly in RPM Global's hands. So I think they're quite unique, especially in the distribution side. And normally you, I tend to worry about acquisitions, 
but we've seen with companies like Constellation Software, if you have a look at the share price chart, it's a Canada, Canadian listed company, it's been absolutely incredible. So we know that idea of making tucking acquisitions in software, cross-selling to other customers is a, is a business model that works, which gives you a lot of confidence uh, in a way that I think a lot of other acquisitions get done by companies do not. So now uh, for the rest of the podcast, we're going to go through questions. Uh, this is from Terry and Wendy. What are your thoughts on Bellamy's? The share price has been falling. Can you shed some light on it? Alex? My first with Bellamy's is always competition. So you see this, this company which makes essentially a derivative of milk, 20% um, EBIT margins from that. Um, so it makes me think that every man and his dog is going to try and do this, any, or anyone that can get access to um, the raw ingredient. Um, so that, that's always my first thought with Bellamy's. Um, they make a lot of money in China and that's a really important market for them and, and that's a difficult market because you know, you're reliant on being compliant with the rules and regulations over there but also Chinese consumer preferences and this is a different product because it's not like a Colgate, you know, a classic consumer brand where you can get a relationship with a consumer and have that for 50 years. You know, the window, um, the opportunity you have with one customer is quite short. You know, people have children and that's only for a small portion of their lives. So Bellamy's needs to continually reacquire that, those new parents in order to stay relevant. So I, I wonder where the margins are going to come down. They, they might have to spend more to defend their position. Um, they need to be compliant with um, these new rules that are coming out in China about their new formula. And I think that's what the shorters are looking at here. There's a 10% short interest. So... I think the shorters are wondering about higher competition and also perhaps some regulatory risk in China. So I think it's quite interesting though. I've, I've always been quite skeptical of this business and this question prompted me to have a closer look and it made me wonder if, if you know, Chinese mothers and you know Australian mothers as well are willing to give this product to their children and then place great trust in that product. Perhaps they're willing to, to buy more products from Bellamy. So can the company leverage the brand over time and can that be a new earnings stream for them? So. If that's a yes, that there potentially could be an interesting long-term opportunity here. I think there's a lot of these companies that are benefiting from the Chinese demand at the moment, and I'm not convinced they're all going to be around in five and ten years making the sort of profit margins they are today. Uh, and it's not exactly the same type of business, but I think it's BWX owns that is a new skin brand. Yeah, that's right. And every time I see that at Coles or somewhere, it's being discounted. And I just keep asking myself, is that the sort of business I want to own where you've got to discount your products in an extremely competitive space, but they seem to have quite a bit of demand for their product now, but I just don't know what it looks like in five years. Exactly. These brands haven't been around for a long time, and, and consumer preferences can change. So it's not like Coca-Cola that's been around 100 years and is likely to be around for another 100 years. You know, something could, could take the, the spot of Bellamy's in the future. So that's probably the main risk. So the next one's from Jason. Just a question regarding the latest capital raising uh, from Matrix Composites, uh, ticker MCE, via the issue of 8.5 million shares at an issue price of 35 cents per share. I'd like to hear your thoughts on if this is the best way for management going forward to raise money as no retail investors were given opportunities to buy shares at this price. Do you think this is reasonable? And I'll just say for the first time, I haven't looked at this company for a little while, but I thought it actually had cash on the balance sheet. Mm. So I'm not sure what was raising capital in, in the first place. It does have cash on the balance sheet. Um, I think there's good capital raisings and bad capital raisings. And I think this is a good capital raising because the company's raising money because they've just won a $15 million order. And so they need working capital to um, service that contract. 
um, the revenue is going to be underwritten for at least the next calendar year and it's going to be up about 100% based on this contract and things are starting to improve based on the, the high oil price that was around but um, there's question marks over that now that the oil price has fallen lower. Um, so I think the, the basis for the capital raising was good. It's good to, it's good to fund companies that have opportunities and um, have the potential to grow and I think that's what's happening with Matrix. But the way they went about it is in question. So the issue is... I assume should, was it a placement at, a, at what type of discount are we talking? Yeah, that's right. It was about, I think it was 9.5% in a $3 million placement. So retail investors didn't get an opportunity to participate. I mean, there's pros and cons of that. This gave... You know, doing a placement gives the company money quickly, and it's also much cheaper than a rights issue. So you if don't it means do a prospectus or any of these things that cost a fortune, exactly right, and it means that they can get working on the contract immediately. So, in this case, shareholders are trading off the the opportunity to participate with just the the company having the money now and getting started. So, I mean, the share price has fallen after the capital raising. So you can buy shares now, and you're not <laughs> paying much of a premium over the capital raising price. So. I mean, it might be a little bit frustrating to some investors, but I think in the overall scheme of things, it's better that the company has work to do and it's better for them to go after it. But if it becomes a recurring theme and if they continue to do placements at discounts, then you know that's probably something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, particularly, I think, for a smaller company because the cost of getting brokers involved, of having to go through issuing shares, is, quite, is very expensive. And for a small company, that expense can be significant. Question from Carolyn, what do you think about blockchain companies or ETFs and do you see a future in the financial sector for this technology? I honestly don't think much um, about it, to be honest. I mean, we, we don't really have opportunities to invest in blockchain companies in Australia. I mean, I'm sure there are some out there, but, you know, they're small, they don't have much credibility, the technologies. it's hard to understand and it's hard to appreciate how that will be applied. I know the ASX is pursuing this. Um, so maybe they'll find some use for it, and I think that's probably the way it'll pan out. You know, existing businesses will take advantage of the technology, and it will help to lower their operating costs. But, you know, show me a blockchain pure play. I mean, maybe if you like the space, you can invest in a blockchain ETF if those exist. Um, but for me, it's not something that I'm focusing on. And it's hard to know who the winners are going to be at this stage as well. So it's all pot luck and speculation if even anything gets proven. Yeah. Actually, I, I would add, though, if, if the, the questionnaire is willing to invest overseas, there's a short seller in the US that has one long opportunity that he likes. His name's Mark Cahodes and the company's Overstock.com. And it's interesting because it has a retail business, which is similar to Amazon, um, an online retail business, which has some value. The company has cash on its balance sheet, so there's, there's some value in the company outside of its blockchain arm, and it's got a number of blockchain investments as well. So... Um, yeah, he thinks that's attractive. I haven't looked into it. Maybe that's something that you could look into. But um, yeah, take it with a grain of salt and, and do your own work on that one. If blockchain technology actually lives up to what people think it can do, essentially it could wipe out the entire financial sector because that's essentially what the financial sector is, just moving transactions around. And any type of ledger-like business is what this uh, blockchain is going to upset. But I think what people don't give enough credence to is the fact that the government controls the financial industry and the economy through the banks. Mm. So a lot of people think the blockchain technology is going to disrupt the banks, but given that the, I just expect the blockchain will have to come under regulation. So even if the technology works, it doesn't necessarily mean people are going to be able to use it because they yeah. know what people outside the banking system. I'm, I'm sure there's pockets where blockchain could um, disrupt significantly. So maybe custodian businesses who are 
paid just to verify that assets are there and that they're managed appropriately. You know, if you can do that with smart contracts, then perhaps they could eliminate an entire industry and take it for themselves. But yeah, it's it's going to take time and it's sort of, it's hard to see how this will play out at this stage. Yep, so watch this space. Uh, question from Christian, your last podcast, podcast prompted this question. If there was a market route, perhaps you could spitball three or four of the best companies each that you'd love to pick up either locally or internationally. So I just decided to pick four stocks. A couple of them probably won't surprise anyone. Yep. But I tried to pick oh, I picked stocks that weren't already in our portfolios because I'm already trying to get the best of breed companies into the portfolio where I can, where the price is reasonable. Uh, and I have to say that we've got some really nice uh, stocks, I think, for the next five or ten years in the portfolio at the moment. So but the first idea is INIF, is it now? <laughs> it should have been. Uh, so my first one was CSL. Uh, it's a business that I followed uh, at Intelligent Investor back since, I think it's 2010. I think everyone knows how good this business is. I'm not prepared to pay 30-something times earnings for it yet. There'll be uh, a day when it comes down to something more normal. I don't know when that will be, but I'm happy to wait. There's another company called Pinnacle which is a funds management business. Uh, it has, it's a small company. Uh, it's back around $5 at the moment, which probably puts it around 25 times earnings this year. As we know, funds management earnings can bounce around through the cycle, but it's a very well-managed company. It takes, a bit like the old treasury group, for those that remember, it takes stakes in funds management businesses, uh, really good funds managers it likes, brings them in-house. And what it does, it has all the salespeople all around Australia to do the sales for them, so it takes that completely off the existing investment team, uh, which allows the investment team just to focus on their investments and they've got the incentives right and I think it's a really nice business and I don't know what the right price to buy it is. I, I argue with myself every day, but it's a company I'd like to own and, and maybe it will be in the portfolio soon. Uh, the other company is ARB. Uh, everyone who's followed Intelligent Investor will know this company, four-wheel drives accessories. The share price has come down a long way. It's now, it was below $16 yesterday, down from I think 22 or $23.00 but it's still on 21 or 22 times earning and it's not growing that quickly. It's the sort of business that you would need to pay the right price for, but it has all the characteristics that we like. Big insider ownership, cash on the balance sheet, really good business and it can really provide some ballast to a portfolio. So as long as you're not expecting to make 15% returns, I think ARB at the right price is one that I'd really like to have. And the other one is a business I don't know that well, but I'm, I'm learning up and trying to understand why they think moving to a subscription-style business is going to double their margin from 24 to 50%, so it might actually be cheap, even though it's trading on about 40 times earnings, so it's pretty hard to say it's statistically cheap. But that company is Technology One, and again, the insider ownership, the founder's still there. Uh, it's, a, it's a business that has in, uh, incorporated itself into a lot of other businesses, a lot of other business rely on it. It's got a great track record, and it has, again, all the financials that you like from these type of business, high free cash flow and margin. So that's four that are, are very high on my watch list. What do you got, Alex? The first one is Zero, so I think it's very, very strong competitively. They've got a really large subscription base, and the, these customers are predominantly all on the same code base. So they get a huge stream of recurring revenue. They're able to invest that into the software, and that benefits all users. And when you get to a certain scale, it becomes very hard for smaller competitors to compete with you. And I think they're they're at that point. It's essentially into it, which is going to going to be the main competitor predominantly in the US. So I think Zero is very strong and they've got a very large growth path ahead acquiring new customers. I think and I may have mentioned uh, this in our, early, our first podcast, but if anyone's interested in reading more about Zero, uh, a guy named John Hempton, 
who is one of the uh, best short sellers in the world and one of Australia's best investors. His background is at Platinum Asset Management. If you go to his blog, which is uh, Bronte, uh, the name of his firm is Bronte Capital, he wrote a blog about zero and why he thinks it actually could be worth well, 10 times what it is today if it conquers the US. So it's, it's a great blog, um, so go have a look at that. Next. Yeah, uh, then, well, my second one was Technology One as well. Um, so I think that's really strong. I think to remove their products from their customers' operations would require close to surgery. You know, it's just embedded in the process and it means that the customer's gonna stick with the business for a long time. As you said, they're moving to SaaS which has its challenges, but I think longer term, um, it makes the business stronger, and I think they'll manage that well over time. Just for people who don't understand, there's been a switch over the last, I guess, five years, where in the old days, if you think about if you bought Microsoft Excel for your computer, you used to buy a disk, you'd buy it once, and you'd put it in your system, and other than maybe getting an upgrade at some point, you really just paid for that product once, and now all these software companies are going to what they call SaaS, S-A-A-S, which is uh, software as a subscription, and it's just so much more profitable for the business because now you have to pay an annually recurring uh, cost for it. You, know, you don't get the CD anymore, but if the downloads and the updates all just come from online, um, it's a wonderful business. Obviously, you need to keep updating it to keep it relevant, uh, but it's just a much, much more profitable business model. And I guess, so I've given two. Uh, the, the third one for me, and it's not a company I know very well because it's always had a high price and that's kept me away, but that's WiseTech Global. And the reason I say that is because they are building a network in the logistics space globally which looks very strong and very hard to penetrate and the retention rates are almost 100%. You've got a, an owner manager in place and you've got a company with a really big growth opportunity ahead. So if there was an environment where you get really low prices, I think it's strong competitively and, and it's got lots of growth. And um, yeah, it's, I wouldn't, I'm not close enough to the company now to, to know a price to buy it. I need to do a lot of work. but. If there was a market route, that would be my opportunity to, to learn a lot more about the company. Okay, great. So another one from Christian, he talks about a company, ITD, is doing a delisting. One of the grounds is valuation. The directors think the share price doesn't reflect the company's true value. Perhaps they could declare a nice fat dividend instead, the other being liquidity. Do you think ASX or the ASX is too lax in these matters? From what I hear in the world uh, regarding ASX and ASIC, they're pretty soft. Other examples are, say, the cases when a director sells before profit warnings and often no action from the ASX. Obviously, as an individual shareholder, you can't do much. Mm. Um, is there anything other people can do, and do you think these guys are lax? Um, I think I think it would be very difficult for the ASX to take in a, a different approach because companies need to be able to delist if, if they think that's the right path. They need to be able to list if they think that that's the right path. And, you know, if they have an ulterior motive, it's very hard for the ASX to discern that. So it's a tricky one. I think in the microcap space, the risk of delisting is always there. I mentioned Academies Australasia earlier, and when I first invested in the company, the company was a $10 million company, directors owned 60%, and they were heavily buying back shares, and they could have quite easily taken that private, and that was one of my main risks. Um, and it turned out that they really valued the listing, so they didn't do so. But that was always on my mind. And I think for microcap investors, you have to always consider that. And it really comes down to the integrity of the, of the directors and, and whether they value the listing and that access to capital. And I don't really buy the argument that delisting is a solution to not being appropriately valued on the markets. Because when you become a private company, there is no market for your for your, the value of the company and your, and your shares. You know, it's a it's a private company, and 
and who's to say what the value is? And so I think in ITD's case, it is somewhat self-serving. I think the directors are, are taking advantage of the low price and they'll probably do very well out of it because with the on-market buyback facility, they'll end up with a lot more of the company at a really low price. So I think it's quite unfortunate for the shareholders. Um, it's one of those risks that has played out in a, in a bad way. And I think um, and, unless you want to end up holding a private company, I think really you just have to take it on the chin. So yeah, it's something to be mindful of in the future. There's a big cost to being listed as well. So in that microcap space, often it actually doesn't, it's not worth being, uh, for all the rigmarole you go through in terms of annual meetings and compliance with the ASX listing and the cost, it's actually not worth being listed. Um, unfortunately, when you are in some of those microcap stocks, you don't often have those uh, big, well-resourced investors that can go and fly the flag if you, if you want them to. Okay, so we've got a couple left. 88 as uh, a holding in the portfolio, Ordinate. You've previously written about Ordinate and the winner-take-all opportunity there. You've also said the only metric to watch for is the adoption of Dante. Are they still in line with your expectations of devices adopting? The market didn't seem too impressed with their annual report. Um, the short answer is yes. So I think it is playing out to expectations, I think. They're growing the number of adopted devices very quickly. And it takes time for devices to enter the market. There's about a two-year lag. So if OEMs decide to adopt Dante today, it'll take two years for that device to enter the market. And um, that's both a good thing and a bad thing because it takes time, but it also means that there's embedded growth. So all of the work that Ordinate did two years ago is starting to play out today. I, I don't think they really need to acquire too many OEMs. It's just about expanding the number of products that use Dante within their existing OEM base. And in that sphere, they've got you know 75% market share in some of their early customers. So it's, it's playing out to expectations. Um, you know, the share price hasn't really done much for the last few months. It's been a bit soft, but you know, the, the market as a whole has been soft. You've had a correction in, in the NASDAQ and some of the high growth names as well. So um, I wouldn't read too much in, into the share price. I think the company's doing the right things and and, and it's just going to take time. But from everything that we can see, things are playing out well. And it's a company that trades on a, on a very big valuation, so it's going to be vulnerable to ups and downs, even though there's not much change in the business anyway. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, sentiment will play its part. But yeah, ultimately, the company's working, working to, towards its opportunity. And I think, um, yeah, if they can continue as they are, I think it's still quite cheap. Okay, so this uh, last one, clearly someone's got their mind on the, on the next downturn. Say the market keeps falling, would you use it as an opportunity to buy the previously high-priced, high-price-to-earnings growth stocks, or would you rather find the deep-value unloved plays? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I, I think generally you just want to buy the cheapest stocks you can find. You, know, you want the risks of those companies to be incorporated into the price, um, but ultimately you're trying to get the most value for each dollar that you put to work. So. I don't really think about it in terms of which categories I go for. I just sort of, you know, think about the companies that I understand, look at the opportunities that I have today and, and just try and make the best of it. So, um, you know, going into a, a cycle is different as we talked about last week. So, you know, if you hold a bunch of low quality, you know, competitively weak stocks, you might have a, a sharper downturn as, you know, those stocks sell off of, with the downturn and then I guess there's extra fear from investors about those businesses having weaker positions. Um, so I think you want to be more defensive going into a cycle, but 
by the same token, coming out of the cycle, some of those weaker stocks are going to rise faster than the stronger ones. Um, so it might mean that you know focusing on the weaker companies, I guess in his terms, the the deeper value stocks, that might be a better place to be. But but generally, I just think you just you just got to find the best opportunities and try and make your portfolio as as cheap as you can. Every downturn is different, and if I think about the GFC, like some of the best bargains were in the A-REIT sector, but they weren't necessarily the A-REITs themselves. There was the hybrid securities, which I think you got Goodman Group, the PREF shares or the hybrid shares, which had no risk of dilution when the company had to raise capital, got down to 10 cents in the dollar. So as long as, the, like the company took a, quite a while to raise the money, but as long as the business was still in business, that was a 10-bagger plus uh, distributions along the way. So you're never quite sure when you go into a downturn where the pain's going to be mostly felt, like it depends what causes it. So in Australia, everyone's talking about a potential housing bust at some point. So if it's housing-led, you know, maybe, well, that sector drags down. I mean, RHG was a, a classic from uh, it was one of Steve's recommendations back at Intelligent Investor, but it was because it relied on uh, financing from securitised uh, debt or mortgage debt. Like that was the pain that was really where the pain was because it was a, the whole GFC was a US housing-led um, you know, recession or almost depression for a lot of people. So that's where the pain was mostly felt, but also because it relied on external financing and the banks were just pulling funds from everyone. It happened to have two things that were totally going against it, and that's where the biggest opportunity was. So you're never quite sure, but what I'd say for the portfolios I run is we've got a lot of big blue-chip safe businesses at the moment, and that gives you a lot of room because they're... When you go through a downturn, relatively speaking, I expect BHP and Woodside and these sort of businesses are going to remain fairly stable. But if, if there's a recession in Australia, and let's say it was a really bad one, then a stock like Flight Centre is going to get sold way off. So we got down to, I still remember the number, $3.49, and, <laughs> and I'm hanging to see that share price again. And you didn't have to give up any safety. Like The balance sheet was still fine. It had lots of cash on the balance sheet, and I think it traded at about probably three or four times net cash earnings at that point. So, yeah, most definitely I'll be happy to swap that for BHP. Uh, but in terms of going for the deep value, I mean, we run portfolios with 20-odd stocks in them. So I think there's actually room for both. I, I, I don't ever want to be in the situation where I'm filling up a portfolio with rubbish. Um, I there's definitely what, time for room for a couple. wonder what will be this cycle's RHG. I mean, if, if it's a housing-led downturn, you could have... Real estate agents like McGrath, which is trading at like 30 cents or so at the moment, you know, that maybe that goes to five cents and that's a great opportunity. Yeah, and maybe like it's got rent rolls, which are, are still going to go on regardless of what's happening to housing prices, uh, which keeps the business going and all of a sudden you realise that um, it's a potential 10-bagger that people aren't even looking at. Absolutely, or yeah. things like mortgage choice, it just downgraded its earnings today. You know, perhaps investors completely throw that out and, and that's the best source of opportunity, yeah. Quite incredibly, uh, I remember Ainsworth Gaming, uh, I was looking at it, I think we looked at the preferred stock before the, the GFC or around that time. I, I believe the ordinary shares got down to something like five cents or four cents. Now that stock went to four dollars something out of the GFC, which is just absolutely incredible. And now it's back to 63 cents, so the business didn't have the lasting properties we generally look for in the business. But if you're really looking for what's going to have give the biggest bang for the buck, it's usually in that really small, somewhat illiquid space of the market. But you're under so much pressure. I think when you're going through it, it's hard to get, you know, again, you don't want to be having a portfolio full of them, but anything that's illiquid where you're prepared to take, I guess, the time arbitrage or the time pain, you can put up with the illiquidity even though you don't know when it's going to recover. You know, that in itself can actually give you good gains. 
So that's the end of the podcast. Thank you very much, uh, everyone, for supporting us so far. Uh, we'll be back in the new year, probably uh, late January or early February, when you're all back from holidays. Again, send in all your questions. We'll be happy to answer them. Again, thanks very much for listening and thanks for your support with our funds. To learn more about the income, growth and small companies funds, head over to investmart.com.au. Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, send us an email at skininthegame at investmart.com.au.